Welcome back for this week's episode of Access and Opportunity. This season, we are exploring how influential investors from across various pools of capital are helping women and multiculturally-led businesses gain access to capital. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Monica Mantilla, a champion for emerging managers. Her groundbreaking accomplishments to increase access to capital for multicultural and women-led small businesses will certainly give us a playbook point or two to learn from. Monica Mantilla is the founder and CEO of Altura Capital. Altura Capital helps large investment funds to find successful multicultural asset managers that have established performance track records, yet have been largely overlooked by large institutional investors and pension consultants. But Altura is not the only way that Monica has spent over 20 years advocating for capital growth in minority communities, and specifically Latino communities. Her innovation extends to her leadership with small business community capital. Today, Monica will talk to us about how she got her start in finance, why there is a dearth of money managers of color, how she sought to remedy that problem with Altura, and how her work with small business community capital is enacting social change. Now, on to my conversation with Monica Mantilla. Well, Monica, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm excited about this conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Such a pleasure to be here with you, Carla, today. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you. So I've known you for a few years, but some of our listeners may not be familiar with you. So tell us how a young woman born in Bogota, Colombia, goes on to graduate with top honors with both a law degree and an MBA, and then ultimately starts her own focused company on institutional investing. Where did you get the entrepreneurial itch? Because you started your own company very early on. <laughs> so where did that yes. come from? I, You know, I was always very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. I And I like to like resolve problems by myself. And I think it was that encouragement of my mother that anything that we liked, we should pursue. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually had two uncles who were lawyers. And so I was a good reader and I was a good student. And I was told since I was very little that I would be a good lawyer. Yeah. And so, you know, you sort of believe it. You don't really yeah. know what you really want until, you know, you until you die, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually, you know, it's interesting you say that because I say in communities of color, if you're smart, I know for me, and I say this all the time, if you were growing up in the 60s and 70s and you were smart and you grew up in the South, you were black, there were three avenues that people tried to push you into. One, to be a teacher. Two, to be a nurse or a doctor. Or three, to be a lawyer. And like you, I could read well. I was very good analytically and I love to talk. So everyone told me from a little girl, you're going to be a lawyer. Same thing. And and I went through law school. I loved the law. And I started to work in a corporation in Colombia as Ah, a lawyer. Okay. Part of my obligations was to go next to the business people and help them write that contract. And Mm -hmm. so they were doing the contract like they were thinking about the terms and I was just taking notes to then put the contract together. Yes. And very quickly, I understood that I wanted to be that person doing the deal. Yeah. And it was then that I met my husband 
who was starting his career in Wall Street. He was a Colombian guy. I was a Colombian girl. He went for the wedding of his sister in Colombia. And we met and we very, very quickly got engaged. 20 okay. days after we wow. met. <laughs> so you're pretty decisive. So that was, a, and yeah, and, and I told my boss, you know, I'm going to leave and I'm going to, I wanted to do an MBA at yeah. that time. That was mm-hmm. my dream, my idea to do an MBA. And I came to United States 26 years ago now. And and so that journey took me to New York, mm-hmm. took me to do an MBA, and it took me to the first experience and understanding what it was to be a minority in uh-huh. another country. Okay. And I remember filling my social security papers, and there were, are you black, are you white, are you Hispanic? And Hispanic was not a notion uh-huh. that I had in my mind. I was Colombian, yeah. and I thought others were Mexicans or Peruvians or Brazilians, but... I understood Hispanic is this notion that gathers all people that have come from Latin America Mm -hmm. and have come to U.S. And so that's when I first thought, oh, I am a Hispanic. Mm -hmm. I'm a Hispanic American. Mm. And my husband and I, from the first day we came, we wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. We really didn't want to be back and forth, like having no roots. Let's, Let's point to when you became aware of the asset management world and why you chose to go into the space that you went into. So when did that happen for you? I guess it was the combination of learning about investment management in business school Uh, and also the fact that I was married to an investment banker. Okay. And so we had many conversations about wealth creation and many conversations around entrepreneurialism. And... I came from a country where there was a lot of development of the financial system, and there were actually many women that were managers and, you know, had executive levels with financial institutions. And I remember one of my first questions was, where are the Hispanic banks Mm -hmm. and who runs the money? Because I always understood that without the capital, it's very difficult to develop a society, to develop a company, to even develop a family. Mm -hmm. And so leaving business school, we started to explore that. And so the idea was to try and develop a financial institution, one where we could be supportive of entrepreneurs. Okay. And we really spent a number of years actually talking to many entrepreneurs in Latin America and corporations in Latin America that wanted to do business in the United States. And that quickly led to the private equity world, right? And so I remember visiting a number of organizations, like at that time, the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility, my friend who then became a treasurer, I went to her and say, do you have a list of minority money managers? And she went to her office and gave me a paper. And she Mm -hmm. said, look, these are the asset managers that I believe exist today. And there was a group like of 30, 40 money managers, a few Hispanic firms, a few African-American firms, a few Asian-American firms. And I remember that was my beginning point to try and understand who were the money managers that were out there. And so I also started to have architectural conversations with the pension funds Mm -hmm. and asking them, how do you come across these managers? Who introduces them to you? Are there consultants that are specialized? And all of a sudden... This conversation took a lot of force with very important institutional investors in the country who actually challenged me and said, why don't you present us a solution? Mm -hmm. And so 
I came, I remember, with a PowerPoint and an idea of let's build an emerging manager platform. And just for mm -hmm. people who might not be clear, emerging managers, the traditional definition, any asset manager that was founded and led by a person of color was sort of the early definition of emerging manager. By the time you and I met, there was a market definition of emerging manager of any asset manager that had $2 billion or less under management if you were a long only, i.e. an equity or fixed income strategy, or if you were a hedge fund strategy, if you had a billion or less capital under under management, then you were considered to be emerging. Right. Or, so, or if you were a private equity, first or second time fund. That's exactly right. right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I remember when we went live, so we built the technology, we put it all together. It was like this big white elephant. Yes. And we opened it to the market. And 60 days after, we had 900 emerging mm -hmm. managers. Mm -hmm. And we had quality information, quantitative and qualitative data of who they were, what their strategies were. How did they compare their performance against the emerging manager universe? How they compared their performance against the larger universe? So it was really a phenomenal tool that created parity of knowledge. This gives us parity of capital. This gives us parity of information. And so there was a huge momentum around the Altura Emerging Manager Information Platform. So first point, if you are an asset allocator and you want to allocate to an asset manager that was founded and run by a person of color, there's a database now out there by strategy that you can go to that not only gives you the name, but it also gives you performance statistics, you know, five-year, three-year, one-year performance statistics across all strategies, equity, fixed income, and alternative strategies. So the playbook, you can't say they aren't out there because they are out there. But the other playbook point is for anybody that's trying to make a meaningful change in a market, giving people data and ways to measure what it is they're trying to do is sort of the first point. And I always say that those who don't get it will hug the data. So the easiest way to create change is to give people the data as a playbook point. Now, let's talk a little bit about what you think you might have accomplished for Latino managers. Because when you and I were trafficking in the same space almost a decade ago, you really didn't see that many Latino managers. So do you think by having Altura Capital, you were able to get more capital to some of the managers that were already out there, number one, and number two, encouraged and therefore, in a way, impacted new funds that were created because they knew they had a shot of getting on your radar screen and then ultimately on the asset allocator's radar screen. Right, right. And that's ultimately the exciting part, right? If we're able to be allocators and it was wonderful to see billions of dollars moving into minority managers and not only Hispanic firms, but emerging firms yes. in general, women-owned yes. firms, Asian-American, African-American, diverse firms. So that impact was there, but I would tell you that I would have expected it to be not in the four or five billion dollars. I would have expected it to be more on the 30, 40 billion dollars. Mm -hmm. okay. And so I think that although there were significant allocations that we were able to channel into diverse managers through, you know, many of the platforms that we developed for institutional investors and corporations, my sense is that there is still much more investment talent. Yes. than there are allocations. Agreed. And in chasing that money is where we 
sort of understood that there was one segment in mm-hmm. that across the asset class that was the fastest lane where we could create the most impact and where there was an opportunity to build value, which was the private equity, private debt lane. Yes. Because I believe that lane is the lane that will provide us the largest amount of opportunity. Why? Because in that lane of private equity, you now have a number of very valuable partners who are doing this with you. So you have corporations and their supplier diversity programs. Okay. You have banks and financial institutions who have desire and need to put to work uh, capital. You have foundations. There's a number of other players, the spectrum of players in the private equity world and in building businesses expands. In the emerging manager world, you're really in the hands of a few large institutional investors that have created emerging manager programs. The private equity world is a much more expansive world Mm -hmm. and one where I believe those multiple billions of dollars can be and should be put to work. So let's talk about the difference in challenges with respect to raising capital. So we're talking to you as an investor that's investing in these opportunities. So I actually want two answers from you. Number one, as an investor, what are the challenges that you see in accessing the right type of investment opportunities with your Altura capital hat on? So in the world of Altura, the capital allocation has the constraint of there needs to be an institutional investor that wants to allocate resources. And then our question is how much, in what time frame, to what asset classes, and then we can go and do our work. Mm-hmm. With your small business community capital hat on, where you are not investing in asset managers as entrepreneurs, but you're now investing in what we'll call regular way businesses as defined as every other industry outside of financial services, mm-hmm. you know, what are the challenges that you see in allocating capital to those multicultural entrepreneurs? In the work we do with investing in small and middle-sized companies, we work with a variety of partners who we're meeting and interacting through technology and conversations every day. And we're scouting the country to find these great entrepreneurs. I always say we cook in a kitchen with four ingredients. We're looking great entrepreneurs who have great companies, who have the right access to markets and corporate support, and we can provide them the right capital structure. That lane is a lane where opportunities abound and where we aim to continue to partner with corporations and with credible, high-quality entrepreneurs from all industries, whether it's you know manufacturing, healthcare, consumer products, and we invite them to think big, to acquire, to grow exponentially, to merge, to partner in bigger and better ways with the corporations they're doing business with. And they're the allocators. We've had the good fortune of finding a phenomenal group of institutional investors who have backed us in that quest. And they want us to be successful, and we want to help these companies be successful. And it's an engine of social transformation and entrepreneurial transformation. That's why we love to say that we're trying to change societies through entrepreneurial success. Before we go, we can't skip my favorite part, 
the lightning round. Alrighty, so lightning round. I'll ask you a series of questions that are just fun questions about who you are so our listeners can get an opportunity to learn a little bit more about Monica Mantilla. Are you ready? I'm ready. Favorite book or magazine? Ah, I love The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Steve Covey. Okay. Mm -hmm. City or the countryside? Countryside. Business or law? Business. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Email or phone call? Phone call. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Uh, Probably Pope Francis. Okay. (laughs) Uh, What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Well, if I can use a sentence, I would say building financial capacity in underserved communities. Well, Monica Mantilla, thank you very much. Muchas gracias. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Season 3 of Access and Opportunity. I'm your host, Carla Harris. Next week, we sit down with Joanne Price, the co-founder and managing partner of Fairview Capital, an institutional investment firm that has pioneered innovative ways to increase the amount of capital available to underrepresented groups. See you then.